Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Move Forward Anyway podcast, featuring dream-accelerating inspiration. I'm Jeff Meyer, your host, author, entrepreneur, and coach. My goal with this podcast is to help you identify and clarify your own dream by taking wisdom from others' successes and challenges. If you're looking to take action on your dream, to make a difference doing something you love, but your fears are holding you back, then this podcast is for you. If you're interested in finding additional support, you can also check out my Dream Accelerator coaching program designed to help realize your full potential and reshape your future. As always, you can learn more about my Dream Accelerator program at jeffmeyer.org. Using my Dream Accelerating formula, heart-centered entrepreneurs can focus on their dream, name their fears, change their mindset, define their next, and move forward anyway. Welcome back, fellow successful dreamers, uh, to another episode of the Move Forward Anyway podcast. I am excited to have a couple uh, significant leaders from my community where I live, Madison, Wisconsin, joining me today. John Terrell, the executive director of Upper House, is with us today, and uh, her his partner uh, in crime um, and in their work in Madison, Laurel Brown, who's part of the Stephen and Laurel Brown Foundation. Uh, Upper House would not exist without the Stephen and Laurel Brown Foundation. And so I thought it'd be awesome to have both of them on the podcast today. Thank you so much, you guys, for, for being with me today and for sharing the Upper House story and maybe even Laurel uh, Dottie's ranch story as well. Um, why don't you introduce yourselves? Okay, I'll go first. Um, hi, everyone. I'm really excited to be here and uh, talk about this topic, which is part of my DNA. Uh, my name is Laurel Brown, as, as Jeff mentioned, and uh, I've been uh, pretty much a lifelong resident of Madison, Wisconsin, although I did live in Atlanta for a little while when I was earlier. And I have been in the uh, profession of design and commercial architecture for about 38 plus years. That has been my uh, passion and what I've done for a living. And I've currently moved a bit into a different role uh, later now in my career where I'm more interested in doing development, multifamily housing development, and small retail center development uh, for my own company. And that keeps me pretty busy. I also have an architecture firm uh, that works with me on those projects, as well as stepping into some new roles uh, being a bit more involved in what was my husband's company, which is uh, a real estate company owning multifamily housing and some commercial real estate, as well as being the uh, chairman of the board of the Upper House uh, Initiative, the Stephen and Laurel Brown Foundation. So with all of those roles, I'm pretty busy. I should say so. I should say yeah, so. Yeah, right. Um, well, I have my name is John Terrell. I'm the executive director of the Stephen and Laurel Brown Foundation. We have two major initiatives that are a part of that: Upper House and Dottie's Ranch. And you'll have a chance. Um, we'll have a chance to talk about both of those projects. For the last 25 years, I, I seem to go up and down I-90. Uh, my life <laughs> and work um, has has really been on I-90. Um, I spent. Um, 10 years with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. Um, this was after um, an MBA and some work in business. I, I had a pretty significant um, experience with an InterVarsity grad and faculty ministry group at Northwestern uh, in, the, in the MBA program at Northwestern University. And uh, that led over time to my joining uh, InterVarsity and working as a chaplain at Harvard Business School. And I was there for five years. I also oversaw all of the MBA program across the country. Um, that led me to Madison, where I stepped into a larger role directing professional schools ministries, which included law school, business school, medical, dental, journalism, vet medicine, anything that you might deem a professional school at the university level. And I oversaw that network for the country. As many of your listeners will know, InterVarsity is based in Madison. So I did a stint here for five years. Then I was recruited to go out to Seattle Pacific. So you can see this I, business school in Chicago, Boston, I-90, Madison, I-90, 
Seattle I ninety. <laughs> you covered the whole. You covered the whole covered thing. The whole thing. Whole thing. And um, I was with Seattle Pacific University for about six years, six and a half years, directing something called the Center for Integrity in Business, um, which was housed in the School School of Business, Government and Economics. And it was really a a project, a think tank, but very practical and pragmatic in its orientation, working with academics and business leaders around a Christian theology of business. What difference does Christian faith make for the practice and study? A business and um, Seattle was an interesting backdrop to do that work. Right. And somewhere when I was out there, it was about seven and a half years ago, seven seven plus years ago. We're getting ready to celebrate seven years here um, from when we opened the the building. I, I joined the team seven years ago, September of 2014. So somewhere in early 2014, um, Stephen and Laurel were in touch with me about um, the possibility through their, through their proxies. Um, they weren't, they weren't directly in touch with me. <laughs> we had this vast network of people out there working on our behalf because I had no clue how you even identify a person right. with the credentials that John has. So I, I got a call from Greg Bergman. Some of your listeners might know Greg. Um, he was the, the executive pastor at Blackhawk church and he was one of the handlers. And um, <laughs> anyways, it led to meeting Stephen Laurel and an interview process. And apparently my wife, Vanya, was the person who closed the she deal. She cinched the deal. Yeah. So it, course, they were right? iffy on me. But um, yeah. <laughs> we so, liked his wife. <laughs> yeah, I liked so that, his wife. That's, that's <laughs> basically the only reason I got to Madison, too. So um, I, I share that with you, John. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Well, that, that's awesome. I remember when you came um, and I remember the days leading up to you coming, uh, having a personal relationship with Steve and Laurel and the, the dream that started. Um, I remember having conversations with Laurel about the, the name, uh, settling on the name Upper House. And yeah. um, we had some conversations about Upper Room or something. And then she yes. said, Upper House. Um, yes. And it's just amazing what has happened in the last seven years. I'd like to go back and First of all, um, ask you, Laurel, uh, and you on behalf of Steve, where did the where did the genesis of this dream for Upper House and um, Dottie's Ranch and the Stephen Laurel Brown Foundation come from? How did it start? Well, you know, people I think tend to um, have this uh, notion that this was a uh, very well planned, long thought through process with years of thinking and planning and kind of visualizing. And honestly, it couldn't be further from the truth. It it wasn't any of those things. And how it actually came to be was my husband had often in very casual conversations uh, spoken about how at some point in his life, way down the road someday, maybe when he was retired, uh, that, you know, he really wanted to give some thought to uh, how the wealth he had built here in Madison, how that was actually going to be used someday when he wasn't around. Uh, And he always had this idea that, oh, it should go for Christian purposes on campus. That was the big idea. That was it. There was no more thought or no more definition behind it than that. And so there was this kind of juxtaposition going on where we, our local church that we're members of is called Blackhawk and Blackhawk was trying to find a more permanent um, site for their downtown venue. We have a few different satellite locations as do I think many, many churches do now. And so we were actively trying to assist Blackhawk because we know the downtown market so well, and we're also have a fair amount of property downtown Madison. We were assisting him in this process of trying to find them a more permanent location. And where we are currently housed as Upper House was uh, an old food court on the second floor of a huge city block, um, fantastic development with retail and housing and university offices. But the uh, food court, about a 15,000 square foot space, did not succeed. And we have we have the housing in this building as well. So we knew all the players. Long story short, there was an effort to potentially look at getting Blackhawk into this old food court space, but 
you know, they didn't have the funds to be able to buy or purchase something of that magnitude. And then this whole coalition of just, hey, well, what if, you know, we could maybe do something with this idea of doing some stuff down on campus. We don't know what it is, but we could do something. Mm-hmm. And so behind this too, I want your listeners to realize that, that what was really um, pushing the agenda ahead very quickly was the fact that my husband had been diagnosed with uh, early onset Alzheimer's and we had all begun to see the decline uh, happening. And so I took it upon myself to say, okay, if this thing that nobody knows what it is, but it's just this nebulous idea of taking our wealth and putting it towards something on campus with Christian purposes, if this thing is ever going to happen, I need to get it going now so that Steve can be a part of it while he's still able to be a part of it to whatever level he could be and kind of get the ball rolling. So there were all these forces kind of at play and it all came together into this perfect storm where we were able to go ahead and buy the food court. Stephen Laurel Brown bought it with the um, agreement that Blackhawk church could use it on Sundays as their downtown venue site. And then it would also serve to house this initiative that we were going to launch that we had no idea what it was. So that's how it all sort of came to be. Um, do you want me to go on about like what we did? And I mean, I'd like to just interject before you do sure. that. I'd, I'd like to just point out or pull out a tease out of that, that you, you took risks and you took initiative before you knew ultimately what the end result was going to be. <laughs> and so often with entrepreneurs that I'm working with, there's a there's a fear to start because they don't have the the absolute final picture in mind. No. And you the the lesson or the principle that I'm already hearing in this conversation is that that sometimes sometimes we just we've got to step into it to be able to actually see what it's going to become. Yes. And if we don't step into it we're never going to be able to see what it might become. That's very um, well said. I agree with that. I've been an entrepreneur on my own my whole life. I've owned my own businesses for almost yeah. all of my life. And I can say without a doubt that if you wait to start something that you know what you're doing, you will never do anything. And so yes. there's this idea that, um, and, and this is a perfect example of literally jumping into the ring of fire and saying, I have virtually no idea what I'm doing. I don't even know what I'm forming. I have no idea what it's even going to do. All I know is we just purchased 15,000 square feet downtown on in the middle of the campus and you better wing it girl. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the, now the time is ticking with the bank notes and we own it. And when I say, cluelessness. I mean that in very, I mean that very, uh, very much uh, in reality that we were all clueless at this point. All I knew was I had a very clear divine, I think it was divine intervention, although at the time I wasn't really fully aware of that, that said, you, you have to do this Hmm. and don't just do it you'll figure it out. Perhaps the fact that I had been an entrepreneur for my whole life and had had a lot of business experience helped me to not be so fearful of having this endeavor. However, what I did, you know, I started thinking about all the things that were going to be involved in this. Well, well, we're ha- we have a foundation. Well, what does that mean? We need lawyers mm. who know how to form that stuff. What are the legalities involved? What is the accounting involved? How does it get funded? How do you form a board? How, how does a board run? How do you find employees? What are the employees going to do? And I had zero answers to any of those questions when I started. I had no idea. All I knew is, well, those are the kind of people I'm going to need at the table to do this because I don't have a clue how to do this. And I don't have the answers to any of these questions. But yeah. I know people that would. Yes. And so it became this uh, effort to actually get the right kind of people around the table. 
because I didn't know what I was doing. So I called on people that I already knew and had relationships with it within the community. Some of them were dear friends, some were more business associate level and literally got people in the room and said, you know, help me. I, Mm. I really don't know how to do this, what has to be done. And as John alluded to, um, we were interviewing people. We had cast this net sort of to get networking, to find an executive director but I said, you know, this guy really needs to be like, um, you know, he really kind of needs to have like a business background, like an MBA, but he needs to be a spiritual leader. So he really needs some kind of education in, um, in, in theology. He, you know, if he's going to be contending on the University of Wisconsin, he probably should have a PhD. And I thought, How, who is this person? Does a person <laughs> like this even exist? It was like. And so again, it was, I have to say though, that to a large extent, it was really all very divinely laid out. Mm. Um, We very quickly found John. I was interviewing him on Skype with one of my pastors sitting next to me and we're hitting each other under the table going, oh, we like this guy. We like this guy. (laughs) And um, and so, (laughs) but you know, it really, you know, to speak to the entrepreneurial nature of these kinds of things. Um, you really, my motto is you feel the fear and you just do it anyway. That, that is just a (laughs) mantra to live by. Mm -hmm. And you have to really begin to ask yourself, what is the worst possible thing that's going to happen to me? You know, what could possibly be so horrible that I could never recover from trying this thing? And usually the answer is it's the falling off that tightrope is, is a lot less high than you really think it is. The fall is actually not that brutal if you don't succeed. But people imagine themselves as this do or die that they're walking this tightrope across the Grand Canyon and by gosh, you know, if they fall, they're dead. And it's simply not true. It's just not true at all. You have to train your brain to understand Mm -hmm. that that's just sort of your reptile brain, you know, telling you to be safe. Right. I think uh, one of the things we teach in the Dream Accelerator is help people analyze their own dream and ask, what is the risk in going for it? But what what usually doesn't happen in those conversations is we don't ask the flip side of that question, which is, what's the risk if I don't do it? And I think of I think of your initiative with Steve. And I know Steve, I know his heart, I know his heart for the students, I know his heart for the university, for the city, um, the heart that people would come to know Jesus and would be in a, would be in a, an enriching dialogue that is non-threatening so that they can really explore the issues of the day. I know that's his heart. And so the risk in not doing it, Laurel, man, I, I just right. think of what Upper House has meant to Madison, the landscape of the campus in the last seven years, and we're just getting started. Right. Um, the potential is there. Um, and if you wouldn't have done that, uh, you wouldn't have honored your husband. You wouldn't have honored his dream. Um, he may not have been able to participate and see it. I can still remember opening night, uh, the opening, um, and just how joyful the two of you were and your family there. Just an amazing thing to be able to see what came about because you took the risk. Right. So John, where do you enter the story? How were when did you um, when did you get this call this interview, and um, tell me what happened that made you want to come here and and lead this project as Laurel calls it, <laughs> this initiative. Yeah, so I had spent many years working at the nexus or the seam of business, the church, and and the academy. Uh, the university. So it wasn't um, foreign terrain for me. I um, had, I had navigated that ridge um, and had in, in, in essence done a lot of translation work across those communities for a number of years. So from, from Laurel's perspective, I mean, it'd be like me sort of moving into architectural or interior, interior design. It would just, I would, I wouldn't even know where to start. Um, Mm. And that's, you know, Laurel is describing her experience and experience in that way. For me, it was um, a more familiar place. Um, it, 
it it wasn't something that I had. You know, I'd been training and preparing for for a call like this um, at a major R1 public university. I think the thing that really, um, and, and it was really a, a divine, in my eyes or in my experience, our experience, um, there were a lot of things that had to happen that were really only explainable by by God's intervention. I was about midway through a PhD program uh, in industrial organizational psychology, and it, it was a residential program. And so the only way that I could leave Seattle, and I had a lot of hours invested in this, you know, I mean, PhD programs are like, mm. they're a marathon. Mm-hmm. So it'd be like bailing out at the 13 mile mark or something. Um, and, but my advisor was just, he was, he just really was encouraging. He said, this looks like a perfect match. Um, I think you should do it. You'll, I, I need you to perform well because we've never made this concession before. <laughs> so, <laughs> so promise me you'll work hard at this and you'll be on every Zoom call. And you know, you're, I'm gonna. I might require more of you than I do some of the other students. Um, wow. Are you okay with that? And um, I said, Yeah, let's do it. So, so I can. So that was that was in and of itself um, really a a sign, I guess that mm-hmm. that you know the the seas were parting, so to speak, and. And then just the, the 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 sense of the call and the mission and and really my own internal sense of curiosity like could you could we do this thing in the middle of the University of Wisconsin campus and there and there are some peer entities like us so I had some of those relationships there is something called the Consortium of Christian Study Centers that is they all look a little different but they're at universities comparable to the University of Wisconsin major prestigious non-religious universities um, doing similar kinds of things. But part of it for me was just curiosity, like, you know, 10 or 15 years from now, could we have had such an impact, not single-handedly, but but because of our partnership with other entities on campus, other ministries, churches, academic departments, could we have such an impact that people all over the world would be scratching their head asking, what are they doing in Madison? Like what's going on there? The people are different. Mm-hmm. Students are different. The administrators are different. The research agenda is different. Like what's in the water in Lake Mendota? Like what's what's going on there? <laughs> it's not that blue green algae either. It's not that blue. <laughs> it's not. Since since I've arrived here, I've also learned that Lake Mendota is the you know the most studied body of freshwater anywhere in the world. I don't know if you knew that, but I did um, not know that. Yeah, the the study of wow. limnology, the study of freshwater, started at UW Madison. Wow! So it's a place of just ongoing study. Um, anyways, um, there's your UW Madison limnology trivia. Trivia. Yeah, you just today. drop. You just draw some gold knowledge there. <laughs> yeah, but I but a lot of it for me was just curiosity, like. Could could we actually pull this off? And um, it would be, it, it would be a long term project. It's going to take time, um, but could we create such a significant institutional presence that if we for some reason disappeared, the university would mourn our mm. absence, not because we just you know kind of stepped in toe with everything they're doing. I mean, we we consider them a friend. But there are there are times where we have a different vision for, you know, um, some of the things that are, um, you know, it's just some of the some of the educational priorities and those kinds of things. But most of the time, we just we we see them as just a really really, a really um, dear friend that we're really trying to come alongside and support in the overall educational mission. And um, so, could we could we have an impact here that? Would be so significant that the university, the church community, all of these interfacing communities would really mourn our departure if something happened and we could no longer be present in this place. So curiosity was something probably that was a little bit of an antidote to fear or some of the other kinds of things mm. that can step in. That was my that was my next question is as you as you came and Laurel, you can speak into this too as you and Steve pursued this nebulous idea around the food court and Blackhawk church and what it might become, certainly there had to be fear. Um, there's always fear in entrepreneurial adventures. Um, that's why we named this the move forward anyway podcast, because that's our mantra is that fear will come, fear will stay, move forward anyway. 
right? Um, and so what were some of your fears? I want you to, you just named one of the antidotes to fears, which was, I love it, curiosity. Like if we could lean into curiosity, um, whenever we experience fear, like if I'm afraid to talk to a stranger, if I can just approach that with a curious nature, it opens up a whole new mindset to that conversation that's about ready to happen. So first of all, what were some of your fears? Both of you can speak to this. You want to go? Yeah, I actually took a few notes down on this because I was, I was, um, I think fear of failure. I, I don't struggle with that as much, but, um, but I do think, you know, it's, it's a, it's a visible stage. And um, I think mm-hmm. that was, that was something that, that was um, part of my kind of a, emotional response. Um, I think anytime you you're taking on a big project, you um, you're not going to make everyone happy. It, it, it's just when organizational it gets complicated, um, your team is going to grow. Um, you're you're going to have um, conflicting stakeholders who you know who have different visions for what it is that you want to be. And so if you have uh, any kind of a people pleasing or just, you're just a relational person, you know, I think, um, and enjoy people um, and relationships that's, that I think can creep in. And for me, I'm just, you know, having to make tough decisions and um, just the fear of knowing that there would be conflicting interests of stakeholders. Mm-hmm. Um, the fear of the, that, um, you know, it's easy to compare. I, I'm getting to an age where I don't do that as much. I think in my earlier days, I com- I compared myself to others. But um, boy, there's so many templates and models for being an effective leader. Um, and um, I'm, I'm, I can, you know, I can be strong and um, assertive. I think I'm sort of probably moderate on the charisma um, scale. Um, I can turn it on when I need to. Um, but I, but some people are more, more branded than I am. And I intentionally don't go that route because I, I actually see leadership as kind of serving from behind in some ways. Sometimes you're out in front, mm-hmm. but a lot of times it's, it's quiet yeah. and it's, it's, it's nudging people along in ways that are really developmental. Did you, feel so like, I, did you feel like the big stage, maybe part of the fear was the big stage wouldn't allow you, you would have to be a different kind of leader and not true to yourself? Did you have any of those thoughts? Like maybe I couldn't be John Terrell leading from behind with this big of a stage? Yeah, I think you can just get in an environment here where you we really stand with, you know, at the nexus of three, three communities. There's kind of the city commons, which mm-hmm. we're a part of, and, and they, there's certain things that drive the marketplace. Um, and that's a place I've worked and lived, and I, I, you know, I feel comfortable. But there's certain values there. Um, there's the academy. I've lived in that world, and there are certain values that drive that world. And then there is the church, and there's a lot of overlap. It's probably you know, good leadership uh, is a Venn diagram, and you there there you know you have three circles, and there's a lot of overlap there. But there are there are things that are different. Um, and so, in my own leadership, just wondering, could I? Could I live up to the expectations simultaneously to each of these three communities? Um, am I spirit? I mean, I'm just sort of making these up. Am I spiritual enough and theologically minded enough and articulate enough for the church world? Mm-hmm. Am I academic enough for the university? And am I um, driven enough for the marketplace? Mm-hmm. And there's well, partial uh, truth in all of that, but I think there is a um, a tempering. There's there's a, a full acknowledgement of those values and a leaning into those values and recognizing to be successful at, at a in a in a project like this. It's important to be um, attentive to each of those communities, but not playing um, or designing or wrapping your life of, around any one of those yeah. three exclusively. You're still John, right? You're still still John, and and. Right, the and, one and, man, God made you to be, and it's the only way you can lead with integrity. So that's right. That's right. Well, I, um, I certainly 
can talk about fear. So I, <laughs> I, I want to sort of set the stage for your listeners because I actually, at this stage in my life with the things that I've been dealt in life and now the situation with my husband in Alzheimer's, I honestly, I feel like I have a PhD in understanding how to manage fear. And I mean that in all seriousness. Um, so for me, I became, so many things were happening at once because of Steve's illness. So there was this urgency in getting this nebulous idea of what Upper House was going to be. And I do remember it was on Easter. I called you from Tucson, Arizona to talk about names. And you were the genesis of how I came up with Upper House. Oh. That's another story. But yeah. um, but I also was being sort of thrust into um, having to manage his business, which is a large business. It's almost 100 employees, uh, hundreds of properties. And I don't know anything about property management. It's not something I've done, did, although... He has an amazing group of people working for him that are fantastic and really good at their job. I sort of ultimately was thrown into this position of, well, you know, you're Steve now. You, you have the final say. You have to make the big decisions. You know, what direction are we going? What are we doing? Should we sell this? Should we buy this? And then I had the stuff going on with this organization and then the emotional things going on with the loss of my husband and his ability to be my partner in business and talk to me about things and how to make decisions was gone. And I can tell you that I literally almost became crippled with anxiety. I was so overburdened in my mind and in my soul that I honestly didn't know if I was going to make it. It was just too much on my shoulders at that time. And what I did was I sort of, it became something, it, it literally became survival. It's like, you're, you're going to either allow this to take you down or you're going to figure out, out a way how to work through it. That that's that those are your two options. You're either going to succumb and, and go down with the ship or you're going to survive. And I am a survivor. I know this about myself. I'm very resourceful. I'm extremely resilient. I actually didn't know how resilient I was until I was I found myself in the situation and I found I actually the beauty of it, you know, I believe there's gifts in every tragic horrible thing that happens to us. We might not realize it immediately, but it does make itself available to you at some point in your life that the what the gift was in that and for me, the gift in this was understanding that I was a lot more capable than I thought I was. And, he, and I always thought I was pretty capable, but this took it to a new level. And once again, it was a process of making decisions about one of the biggest things I did, and it was literally a decision, was I said to myself, okay, he has a wonderful group of people running his business, the property management end of things. I'm going to make the decision just to trust them. That's it. I'm just, I'm deciding to walk in trust. And when I made that decision, thousands of pounds came off my shoulders because I thought, you know, what's my alternative? Live in fear every day and be racked with nervousness and anxiety and, and feel like, can I trust people? What's going on? I, they could, and quite honestly, I know nothing about this business. They could be putting things in front of me that were completely fake. And I would have said, oh, that looks great. I had no idea what any of this said, what it meant, mm -hmm. how to read it, how to decipher numbers, what this meant to that. I had no clue. And again, it was just this decision to trust. And the other thing was I continued to surround myself with people who were a lot smarter than me and who knew how to do the things I didn't know how to do. That was a big lesson for me because I've always been the type of person that's kind of, you pull yourself up by your bootstraps. My dad had a sign over the door that said, no sniveling. You know, I was brought up in this very kind of, you, you take it, you deal with it, you get it done yourself. And it was hard for me to ask for help. It, it felt like in some way I was failing 
if I wasn't able to manage all of this and know the answers, I mean, it's like, how could you possibly know the answers to any of this? You can't. Mm. And it became abundantly clear to me that I had to ask for help, which was very humbling for me, but it was also perhaps one of the biggest gifts I've ever been able to give myself is to ask for help. And it's amazing Mm -hmm. how willing people are to help. Um, So with the help of other people and some decisions I made to trust, and I have to share with your, your listeners that I literally did have this visual in my mind when I was dealing with all of, if you can imagine, all of the things that were encompassed in where I was at this point in my life, specifically to the losing of your husband, really in the prime of your life, to this debilitating disease. I had this vision that I was in this dark tunnel, that I absolutely, there was no light at the end of the tunnel. And I kept just praying to God and saying, I can feel the sides of the tunnel. I can't see anything but I'm going to trust if I just keep putting one foot in front of the other. Hmm. Sorry, I'm getting a little emotional, but I just trust that if I keep walking just in total blindness, blank darkness, that at some point I just have to have faith. I'm making a decision to have Hmm. faith that at some point I'm going to see a pinhole of light at the end of that tunnel. And I'm just going to keep moving forward toward, and I carried this visual with me for years in my head because I felt like I was in a black tunnel, but I couldn't let that black tunnel, I reframed what that black tunnel was in my mind. And so for me, a lot of surviving and overcoming the things that are going to get thrown at you is reframing them in your mind as to what they mean and what the consequence of it is. So for me, I always tried to take the most scary thing and somehow reframe it in my mind. Just like the question you asked, Jeff, what what are the consequences if I don't do this? Mm-hmm. You know, to spin it around and try to find the the goodness or the faith in something. And often it literally is faith. There's no evidence at all that can show you or prove to you that anything is going to work out. There is zero. There is none. You were in that black tunnel, but you just move forward with faith and, and courage. I I really believe that it's courage and courage is I, it took me years to understand that courage is not the absence of fear. You know, we've heard these things out there sound bites, but I mean, I actually lived it. Mm -hmm. I embodied that knowledge to realize that, because I felt fearful did not mean I wasn't one gutsy chick. I am one gutsy chick, (laughs) no matter how much fear I have felt, which I want viewers to know, they think, oh, well, you know, you've been in business and you owned a a business and, you know, you know, all these things. No, I had struggled with debilitating fear and anxiety um, throughout my career. And it's just been this process of reframing to get through. And it was, and it, and, and it works. It's worked and it continues to work because we I'm still having, in the tunnel. Pardon? Yeah. We were just having a coaching, uh, our coaching session last night with the uh, dream accelerator. And we did a, a journaling exercise, which had them say, okay, I, I want to pursue my dream, but, and we, we had them reframe it. I want to pursue my dream and just changing the word from, but to, and, Right. When you say, but you just come up with all of these obstacles, all of these barriers are going to get in the way, all of these worries and anxieties. But if you just add and to it um, in the church space, too, and I think, John, you can speak to this as well. But I we have uh, through the years in the church, I don't know, there's been this I don't know if it's overt or if it's been covert, but a message that has been propagated in the Christian space is that if you have real faith, um, if you have real faith, you won't, you won't be afraid. It'll remove fear. Um, and it's, it's a lie. It's, it's a just an absolute lie. lie. So I, lie. we teach courage and fa- courage and fear are kissing cousins. I mean, if, if you're going to do something that commands courage, there is going to be fear. Absolutely. Um, Well, in the physiological experience of the body from fear 
and joy or excitement, physiologically, the same things are going on within your body, you know, adrenaline, different hormones and things. It's just how your brain decides to interpret that physical sensation. You know, if your heart starts pounding and your feet, you know, your hands are getting sweaty, well, that could mean you're, you know, about to arrive at the most exciting trip and cruise or something you've ever been on and you can't wait to go on it and you're just filled with excitement. Or those same physiological symptoms can be you're about to walk up in front of 10,000 people and deliver a speech about a product you designed. You know, it's the same physiological thing. It's just, what is my brain telling me about what's actually happening here? Yeah, yeah. And God designed us to be whole beings, right? Emotional, physical, spiritual, relational beings. And so we can't just cut that off in our entrepreneurial pursuit. Um, John, you very quickly... I would imagine when you were interviewed for this position and it was Stephen Laurel's dream per se, you very quickly, somehow, I want to hear about how it became your dream. So you're not just doing this work for Stephen Laurel. And this is what's really interesting. I love the relationship you guys have with Stephen Laurel and what you're doing. There's a great amount of trust there. And, um, but it, you're not just doing you're not just doing this work and working so hard because you're trying to fulfill Stephen Laurel's dream. It has become yours. How did that happen? There was a lot of alignment to begin with. I think there was a one of the ways they articulated the project was that we didn't we weren't going to exist to to embattle the university that we were really going to befriend the university and and come alongside the university and i was not interested in any kind of culture war project mm-hmm. um so there were some things from 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 early on i think that showed alignment i think i think you just there's a lot of trust i think you you trust started early and then i think you just have to cultivate trust over time and every little thing that um you know, where communication is clear or, you know, you're off, the, you're, you're transparent and where you have to have a hard conversation, all of that, you know, accumulates into more and more trust. Right. And so that was a part of it. Um, and then they really allowed me and invited me and the whole staff team to put our personality into this thing. Mm-hmm. So we set up a, a governance structure that was um, more of a, uh, for those who have board governance, um, background. It's more of a Carver, John Carver model of board governance, where the board is responsible for the North Stars, the ultimate end end goals of the project. And they're the keepers of that vision. But they, and they review strategic plans, they review the numbers, but they really empower the executive director and, and, and count on the executive director to build a strong team that will deliver on that. And they're not going to run around the executive director's back and go talk to the director of communications or talk to this employee. They're going to, they're going to come to me. They're going to have high, high accountability, high expectations, but high support as a board. That's where you want to be yeah. as a leader, high support, high accountability. Most people thrive when they know that you're putting before them a big challenge, but you're going to support them in that challenge. You're not going to just leave them out there. Um, without any communication or clarity or the tools they need to achieve the job. So Browns did that um, for me and, and modeled that. And that allowed me to feel freedom and confidence. Uh, allowed me to start to build out a staff team and, um, and just kind of go from there. So it, it was, there was alignment to begin with. Um, we shared the same passions to see the university change, to see students and faculty and staff and the community um, grow and um, flourish because of this initiative. So there was some alignment, but I think over time, it just grew based on the accumulation of trust and, um, and just getting wins under your belt. Anytime you can kind of see progress and get, and get wins. Um, and that reminds me, there was a point where we were talking about these sort of the fear of, of stepping out. I think one of the things that comes from organizational science, it's really helpful, helpful. And I'm sure you talk to your, your um, listeners and your community about this, and that is to create really um, clear proximal goals. So we take 
little steps that allow us to ultimately get to that big, big thing that we're after. And yeah. sometimes we have to break things down. It's like, you know, starting a writing project. How many people struggle to get going on a writing project? Or it could be building a company. But if you can take, you can kind of break out that one small task. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just freeform write for 15 minutes. I'm not going to edit myself. I'm just going to get whatever comes to my mind out on this topic, on this piece of paper, and I'm not going to edit myself. That's a step. Once you do that, it allows you, you've made progress. You start to get confidence. Most of us find that when we, then we have those proximal goals, we get into flow actually, which is another concept where we're kind of operating out of our strength and our passion. doesn't always happen. Sometimes we just have to grind through tasks. But oftentimes when we take those small tasks, we get into more of a flow. And then we realize that we're well down the road to achieving our goals. Yeah, my wife, Amy, reminds me when I get overwhelmed, it's because I'm looking too much at the end. I'm looking, I'm, I'm, I'm not glancing at the end to make sure we're in the same direction, but I'm gazing at it to a point where it just becomes debilitating, right? Um, so don't look at the ultimate, look at the next step. And she, she helps me with a word picture. She says, it's like eating an elephant. You can just do it one bite at a time. You know, you, you just got to figure out that first next step and get on the way. Too many people that I work with are overthinking the entrepreneurial process. They're overthinking yeah. their dream. They're trying to come up with the whole roadmap in their head before they take one step. Yes. And it's so debilitating. You can't do that. You can't do that. And you know, one of the other consequences of my situation with my husband is, is that I have really come to learn and understand. I have two points I want to make, and some of it's in response to John's things. But one of the things I have really learned on an epic scale is the notion of living in the moment. We mm -hmm. all hear this. We all pay, you know, nods. Oh, yes. Isn't that wonderful? We live in the moment. But when you're, when you're dealing with someone with Alzheimer's, that's yeah. where they live. They're not in the past. They're not in the future. They often can't remember what was talked about one minute ago or one second ago. And it's really understanding that you really have to be present in the moment in a way that really like it materialized it for me because I certainly, you know, we all think about that and it's very difficult to do. Um, but to piggyback on that, what I want to say in response to some of the things John was talking about. Um, one of the lessons I, you know, I don't think I've been this brilliant business owner and manager I've done all right, but part of it was my management style. And when I met Steve, uh, he and I had polar opposite management styles and very different personalities. He was a very jovial kind of hands-off self empowered the people around him. Yeah. Didn't worry about the details, kind of just looked at the big picture. Didn't need to get involved in day-to-day -day things. He hired really smart people around him and put them in positions to do those jobs and then let them do it the way they wanted to do it. You know, it may not have been the way he would have done it, but the end result was it worked. The, you know, it was a positive outcome and this is the way they wanted to do it. And what I saw was um, an incredible difference in his ability to lead an organization and to grow an organization. I, on the other hand, was someone who was always obsessed with every detail, mm -hmm. felt that if my eyes didn't look at it before it went out, God only knows what might go wrong, that everything I had to have a say in, no one else could be really fully trusted as much as I could to be putting out an excellent product. And at least in my field, I'm not talking about this in terms of everything in life and what I did for a living. And what I have come to realize now that I'm older and certainly being married to a guy who I tried to take a, a page out of his playbook is to, mm -hmm. no, 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 you need to step back and trust that other people not only are as good as you, but most likely are better than you in this particular area. And you have to make the decision to let them do things the way they want to do it. Yes, there has to be a modicum of, of understanding on where are we going, what are we doing. But, you know, 
John is, is the, is the engine on the train. I, I don't have, I don't second guess what he's doing. We have conversations and might strategize about things and I lend an opinion. And then he may decide to go do what he wanted to do in the first place. Or um, I don't micromanage anything around here. And it, and it is such a difference. And I really want to implore this into your listeners' minds is you've got to let go of control mm-hmm. of everything. You can't control everything and you shouldn't control everything or you're never going to get anywhere. You're going to spin your wheels and you're going to stay a little two-bit organization or a little two-bit, two-bit effort because you're too worried about letting anybody else have any control. And it'll And it's really one of the fatal mistakes most entrepreneurs make uh, is thinking that they have to be in control of everything. No, you're much better off to hire people who are smarter than you. I love to listen to John talk because he's so much smarter than I am. And I learn from him all the time. And so I really, that's the point I wanted to make was uh, letting go of control because you, it's an illusion anyway. There's a couple, it is an illusion, right? And your experience with Steve and his illness has really borne that out, right? That wasn't on your, that wasn't on your play card when, when we um, had you guys get married, when, when no, I participated in that, right? Not. We never saw that coming. No, nobody does, right? Horrible. Nobody sees yeah. those diagnoses no. come or the death of someone unexpectedly or crisis of some kind. You can't, you can't ultimately plan for those things. There's two things yeah. I, I want to pull out of what you just said. One is um, the transformation that has happened for you, Laurel, in this adventure that began with the nebulous idea in the food court there and, and going through this with Steve and there's been a transformation in you. There, there are, you will be transformed if you pursue your dream, you will learn or, or, or not, but if you pursue it and you really give yourself to it, you will change. There will be change and it will be good change. Absolutely. If, right. I so mean, there's a benefit to ourselves in doing this, this thing of chasing after a dream. There's something we're going to learn a bunch of stuff. I mean, think of all the things you, John, have learned and you, Laurel, have learned by jumping into this thing. Right. And I think there is, um, and Laurel's worked with me on because we've gone from one employee to we have. We have 12 core, 11 or 12 core employees, but there are 30 people that are on our team. When you yeah. add up the interns and part-time and independent contractors that play a significant role, there's over 30 people. So it's, you know, we've had rapid growth. Um, but I do think it, there, is a, there is a transition that happens over time. If you're a, an entrepreneur and you're starting something, you're probably in all the details. Mm-hmm. You, you know, you, you and, and there's a value of learning all of that. So there's not a thing in this space that I haven't done. Yep. I have, I have fixed the toilet. I have, yes. um, I know how to um, clean the, the refrigerator. I know where the leaks are in this building. Um, I, sorry. You know, I, know, there I, are. I mean, I know all the details because <laughs> I had to attend to it and I don't do it anymore. Yeah. Um, there are others that, you know, that are frontline on some of that stuff, but there's, there's a value in that. But over time, um, there's a value in having of being in the weeds, you learn the trade, you learn the business, but, but there's also an important time where you step away and, and you have to make a decision that, um, it's not that that work is under you. It's not that at all. It's just that the kinds of decisions that are on your plate are different kinds of decisions to continue to ensure the success right. and vitality of the organization. And so you pu- you're pulled in different directions. And, um, and Laurel has been really a good coach on that. And I've gotten really much better at that um, of just, you know, trying to focus on the things that are most important for me to focus on and really acknowledge that there are others on this team that are better at a lot of the other things that we do, even important things like program formation and, you know, the speakers we bring in, I used to have my fingers on every one of those decisions, mm-hmm. not the case anymore. And those are, those, I see them at the end, you know, sort of in the end, end stages, but, um, but I don't, I'm not always in the ideation of that for yeah. sure. I think, um, and I'm going to get a little theological here for a moment. Um, 
I don't know when it was for me, but I, I realized uh, somewhere in my ministry that the gospel was not just that Jesus died for us and we get to go to heaven. The gospel was also that he entrusted to us his mission. And one, he not only loves us by forgiving us or being patient with us, he loves us by entrusting the father's business to us. Mm -hmm. And that is so profound that he would allow us to be involved in the lives of people and help introduce them to Jesus. You're doing that on campus, but you guys are also doing that in your business life. You are entrusting the mission of the organization, Steve Brown Apartments, um, Brown House Design. You're, you're entrusting the, the business to other players who get to own it and they get to really live it and become part of it. That is love. Um, I, I just, I just wanted to say that I don't, I don't know what that really has to do about anything, but I, I just think sometimes it's not just about having a good business mind. You're actually loving people by entrusting them with stuff, mm -hmm. your stuff, right? Your dream. And the sooner you can do that, the better. I just hired two new people on my team for the dream accelerator. And, um, I just, Two days ago, I sent him an, uh, an email saying, I, I, I want to think about this. And we have this think tank going and they're invested now differently than they were a week ago because I asked them for input. So as soon as you can, once you have learned all the details that you need to learn, build your team um, and, and trust things to other people in the journey. Um, I want to. I want to, first of all, say thank you again for taking time to be here, but I want to give you the last word. I want, I want you to speak to uh, the listeners. Um, maybe someone's listening. They have a dream. They're afraid. They're anxious. They're not ready to take that step because they want to, I don't know, get it all figured out before they move. Um, they're resistant in some way, and it's not external resistance as much as it is internal resistance that keeping them from moving forward. What would you like to say to them? They have a heart-centered dream that's going to make the world a better place, like you did, to come alongside a university and befriend it instead of being an adversary to it. Um, that needs to be in the world. Their dream needs to be in the world. What do you want to say to them to encourage them to move forward anyway? Well, first, I'd like to apologize. We have construction going on below us. I don't know if you can hear that jackhammer going. Fine. Okay. Everything's perfect. Um, what I would say to them is, as I started out, uh, feel the fear and do it anyway. And, and, and stop making excuses to wait. And stop making excuses that you don't have enough information. Or stop making excuses that you don't have money. Stop making excuses for why this won't work or this will work or that. Just jump in. Just mm -hmm. jump in. And don't worry. You know how to swim. You're not, you're not going to drown. You mm -hmm. may be kind of flailing around a little bit, but you're going to be okay. And, you know, as I said, too, you know, if you wait to do something until you know how to do it, I, you literally will never do anything in your life. And you're going to miss so, out on so much. It's so true. And so I just encourage people to say, you know, it's really becomes, it really for me, and I don't know if all your listeners are Christian listeners, but what it is, what it has always come down to for me is I have to trust that God knows better than I do mm. and that I'm going to be okay no matter what happens. And that the stakes are really not as high as they think I, that that I think they are, because ultimately I know where I'm going, and how bad can that be? You know, yeah. so that's kind of I mean that's a oversimplified way of thinking about it, but jump I really in. believe that that's true. Jump in, baby, jump in. I love it. Right. How about you, John? Well, I my theological. Um, I'm going to give a practical and a theological. The theological response would be, um, your work really matters to God. Yes. Um, we don't live in a binary world. Um, there's a beautiful poem. I actually wrote it down just thinking about this time. Elizabeth Barrett Browning in her poem, Aurora Lee says, earth's crammed with heaven and every common bush of fire with God, but only he who sees takes off his shoes. 
And I, you know, it, it truly every bush is a fire with spiritual possibility. And so no matter what your endeavor is, what your project is, however mundane it feels, um, first of all, it's, it's work that's pleasing to God. Um, and we can honor God in that work. And, and secondly, um, when we do good work, good quality work, whatever it is, building a good chair, designing a good, beautiful room, um, building cameras, or building a church, all of that helps God's people flourish. Uh, all of that helps the world flourish. It has that potential. And um, so I would, for one, um, I would just want to encourage entrepreneurs, intrapreneurs, theologically, that anything they're doing, no matter how gritty or mundane it feels, and there are moments whenever we're in a startup or an initiative where they're where we're in that sort of grind, um, it's those moments are laden with spiritual potential. And, and I think scripture affirms that in so many ways. So that's a theological response. The practical response is really around agency. We have focused so much on this in these 18 months of COVID with, with our team here. And like a lot of teams, we, you know, we felt some of the, we don't have a lethargic team, um, but we had, did have a team that felt some of the the, the, the lethargy or just the, just the heaviness of that long, yeah. dark, especially in the winter COVID wow. season. Right. Yeah. And, um, and so we just kept talking among ourselves. What, what, do, where do we have agency? What can we control? What can we not control? Let's focus on w- what we can control. How can we in this moment with all the boundedness that's in front of us make a difference? How can we take a step forward? How can we move and um, and build, even when it's a season where building seems so tragically difficult? Hmm. Um, and that 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 word agency is a really powerful word. I think I think a lot of people struggle with hopelessness and a lack of 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 really being able to dream and have agency. And that's I think why your work is so important. Thank you. And why the work we do is so important, because I think yeah. we all have an opportunity to, to make a difference. Yeah. Um, our spheres of influence look different. Um, you know, we start, sometimes we start from different places. We have a different set of resources and, and so forth, but we all have an opportunity to make a difference. So agency for me is an important idea that's, that's really helped me in seasons that have been difficult. I love that. Thank you so much. Um, thank you, guys. I People are going to want to know more about Upper House. They're going to want to know more. We didn't talk about Dottie's Ranch. I wish I had more time uh, to talk about where that dream came from to honor um, your mother. And, um, you know, I, I am so thankful for you guys and what you're meaning. We live right down the street now. We have moved to the west side of Madison. So and we're just down the road from Upper House um, and I'm so grateful for what your, your presence means for the university, for the, all the students, for the nations that are gathering there, um, for educational institutions. I was part of the, um, I don't even remember the name of it, but Upper House uh, hosted it. it. And it was a dialogue with religious leaders around um, racial injustice after the, the murder of George Floyd. I was a part of that at Upper House. So you guys are stimulating these conversations that mean everything to us. And so thank you for that. Um, how can people find out more about your work? Where should I send them? Uh, upperhouse.org um, is the easiest way to, to, to find out about us. Um, upperhouse.org. Um, you can find out about Laurel there. You can read about me there as well, our entire staff team. And uh, we don't actually advertise Dottie's Ranch. And, and maybe Laurel could just kind of offer a final word on that. That's really a network of f- friendships, but it's a beautiful yeah. property that we use for leadership development and, ret- and groups that, are, that need to retreat away from the city. And um, maybe we would end with that. And if there yeah. were any interest in, in that, um, you know, we can field those requests personally if, if your listeners um, have yeah. questions about that. Do you have time for me to talk yeah, about Dottie's? Ahead, Laurel, please, please. Okay. Yeah. 
Um, well, Dottie's, uh, my mother's name was Dottie, and I grew up on a 500-acre farm uh, right out in Oregon here outside of Madison. So long story short, my uh, mother died uh, at in 1984, and uh, in 95, my father to de- decided to sell the property to the DNR because they were doing a large-scale buy-up to um, do a preserve. But he kept one acre of land that his law office, log cabin law office, had been built on on the property after my mother had died. So they, the DNR had the first right of refusal to buy it, and his partner was uh, retiring, and so the building was no longer going to be used. And I had put a bug in his ear for quite a while that I told him, you know, I'd like to buy it. Now, at that time, I didn't have any knowledge of the foundation or the use for the foundation. This was purely, I'd love to have a piece of my childhood. The land was so beautiful. Wouldn't it be fun? We could have family reunions there. And so everything unfolded in our favor. We were able to buy it, um, did a massive remodeling on it. And then it was like, well, Steve said, well, this should just go into the foundation so it can be here forever for everyone. And I said, that's brilliant because I, what would I do with it? Leave it to my nephews who have no interest in being in Wisconsin. So (laughs) it was kind of a no brainer decision to put it into the foundation so that, and it's a very special place. It's in the middle of a thousand ninety six acres of DNR nature preserve. And we're one acre of private land right in the middle of it. So it's an amazing place. And um, as John said, it's not something that's just sort of open to the public. It has to be, you know, for the, we have criteria for use and purpose of use and that type of thing, but um, they can learn more about it if they really are interested in speaking to someone here on the staff about it. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that story. I've been there multiple times and it is a, is a beautiful place. Slightly, slightly magical. (laughs) <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. People yeah. say that about it, that the, yeah. there's an energy there. That's yeah. just something very special and peaceful. So I am just so grateful. These uh, upper house exists and Dottie's ranch exists and um, your, your business Laurel uh, has been a blessing to me personally, uh, your design work. And um, thank you for being uh, risk-taking adventurous entrepreneurs Uh, that are making a difference in the world. And thank you for joining me today on my podcast. Thank you, Jeff. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Jeff. Awesome. Thank you. Hey, fellow dreamer. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Head over to my website, jeffmeyer.org, for all of the show notes and links. And when you're ready to move from overthinking about your dream to actually taking action on it, consider joining the Dream Accelerator community. Our clients are getting crystal clear on their dream with our Dream Generator Vivid Description 5-step process. They're discovering the truth about fear and how to use it as fuel to take courageous steps in the right direction. And most importantly, they are walking a clear path forward because they have made an investment in themselves to confidently realize their dreams. The results are so inspiring. Having coaching and companions on the dream journey is crucial. Remember, fear will come, fear will stay. Move forward anyway.